Today's show is made possible by Wine Emotion USA, the industry leader in wine dispensing and preservation systems. Reduce spoilage, track your pours, and increase your return on investment. With 30 days of preservation, three pour control volumes, and Wine IDS software, Wine Emotion systems are the dynamic tool to expand your wine by the glass program. Visit WineEmotionUSA.com, that's WineEmotionUSA.com, to see how your business can grow your wine sales with Wine Emotion wine dispensing and preservation systems. Wine Emotion USA, technology at the service of wine. I mean, some people will hit the lottery and everything comes really quick and easy, but in most cases it doesn't. But you can get little pieces of it and, and, and every time you come to a crossroads, if, there's a, if you can think of a creative way to you know, take the turn that gets you a little closer to your passion, it's amazing how it just kind of, you can get closer and closer. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, it's the stories behind wine, a show about the people, places, and stories that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfus, and on today's show, we speak to a skateboarding philosopher, punk music lover, father of two, who was named Winemaker of the Year, about his journey to becoming one of the most sought-after vineyard consultants who is helping lead the new wave of Napa Valley winemaking. Steve Mathiason, and um, I'm a farmer and winemaker. Great. And dad. And dad. That's an important part. Yes. Also joining me in the studio today is... Geraldine Brostrom, and I am the Managing Director of Italian Wine Central and also an instructor here at the Napa Valley Wine Academy. Steve, let me ask you just first off, how does a a kid from Winnipeg, Canada, um, who's raised in Tucson, goes on to study philosophy, uh, becomes a bike messenger, how do you transition from that to owning your own wine brand, making your own wines, and becoming one of the go-to guys for uh, organic viticulture in, uh, in California? So I'm trying to like, think of a flippant answer and then talk myself out of saying the flippant answer because you know, I don't know how the heck, heck you go from all that um, luck and focus, I guess. But um, you know, the thread that's carried through all that is... is I, you know, I fell in love with with um, gardening at an early age for a couple of different reasons. My parents were splitting up, and I got shipped off to my family's farm in Canada, and so I spent time out there when I was like seven, and just loved the open space, the tractors, the rural lifestyle, the flow, the um, just the feel, just the idea of being out there and growing things. And um, the way, out there, it's ways of grain. It's you know obviously different than vineyards, but grain fields have a similar bountiful feel that vineyards have, and that somehow gets, if you're susceptible to that, that that um, gets in your in your soul, I guess, and your craving for the type of um, of life you want to be in, you know part of. But um, but you know my parents. Again, they were splitting up at that point in time, and we moved down to Tucson with my mom. Lived in, you know, we the furthest thing from having a farm or having any family. I mean, I was cousins, but there was no family lineage of taking any kind of farm over. Learning that that apprenticeship, family based, um, you know, deeply complex skill, and so I didn't consider that. I just there's a longing or a sense of. I guess of loss that that's not something that is my path, and, um, and so then then I um, went, had you know ADD and went to an alternative grade school and um, we had uh, garden rows there, and so um, so I don't know that I made the connection at that age of my time, but I was very drawn. The school wasn't very structured, and you can different things. I was drawn drawn to the garden. And so I gardened, and then in, in, through high school, I don't know if I gardened. Sorry, in junior high, I don't know if I gardened. But in high school, I, w- I got into skate. I was, you know, really into skateboarding and and punk rock and stuff like that. And then I, um, um, but I had some knee injuries, and so I shifted over to. I incorporated cycling, and got and um, had this book on um, this this 1970s Tour de France coach, uh, sort of cycling manual. And it had a whole section on how, you know, you can imagine a French from the 70s cycling manual. This is like, you know, so it's the tail end of old school, not into like doping. It's more 
you need to eat plenty of cheese. And, you know, so his race, they had the, the section on the whole like cooking section for how you should be eating as a psych bicycle racer. A lot of roasted chickens with goat cheese stuffed under the skin. And the race sandwich was really important because you had two pieces of toast with ham and brie. And you, had, you dipped it in red, in, sorry, in white wine for digestion because you need digestion when you're racing and wrap it up in tinfoil and put it in your, you know, so it's like, um, so I'm eating this stuff when I'm like 16 years old and going, oh, race sandwich. And, um, and I'd been to Europe because my stepdad, my, my mom remarried. My stepdad was a World War II vet. We went to Europe, went to Normandy and went to the Mosul because, and as part of the, um, when I was 14, the anniversary of D-Day. And he told this story about how, and we always had wine in the house because he had, when he was a truck driver after the war and had and was stationed in the Mosul and was and would trade diesel for Riesling and and hams with the local farmers. So we always had Riesling in the fridge. It was like blue nine usually, but I don't even know if that's Riesling, but it's kind of like Riesling basically. He thought it was Riesling. And so um it would, you know, so there's that and so you put all that together and then and um so when I went to college I majored in philosophy because it was interesting. It wasn't necessarily a passion. The passion was gardening cooking and you know cycling and kind of and this the whole lifestyle around that and then you bring in um you know jack kerouac and on the road and that whole like if you you know grew up in high school in punk rock you graduate to things you know jack kerouac basically is part there's a you know charles bukowski there's sort of a um progression there and and that very much entails a jug of wine and camping and you know like you know you know, getting out to the coast with your jug of wine, your loaf of bread, and, you know, it's all a continuation. And so when I was working as a bike messenger, it was gardening, I was cooking, you know, the, the urban gardens in San Francisco, and the, and I just was lucky to find out about UC Davis and realize there was an entire school dedicated to agriculture, and I was like, why didn't I know about this when I was applying to colleges in high school? But better late than never, so I was, you know, at that point I'm like 23 or so, Went to grad school. I'm, you know, 48 now. Went to grad school. God managed to get into Davis, and um, for international agricultural development, got an internship working for a consulting company in vineyards to try to just get practical experience. And I was so lucky because I would have worked in cotton. I just wanted to learn farming. I was interested in organics, but I just wanted to get practical experience. Got lucky. It was a vineyard company, and then Davis is a viticulture school. So I. Now it was like sort of the final culmination. It finally came together for me. And so that's when I started. So I stayed with that consulting company. It was 1994. And I stayed with them I, I, the whole time I was in Davis. And then when I got out of um, master's degree in horticulture, because I switched over, I just stayed with the consulting company. And so now when I consult on organic viticulture 2017, you know, I was working for Four Seasons Ag Consulting in 94, and they consult. I was the at that point in time running around gathering samples and stuff for them, but that was what they did was consult on sustainable and organic vineyard and orchard production. And so I kind of learned that there's a trade around that that I sort of learned. So how's that for how? That's, that's, that's great. <laughs> I, I want to know when, when does the movie come out? Because that is, uh, it, it sounds like a very much a renaissance experience, right? This, yeah. this, this progression of, of um, you've, you've been able to weave in all your life experiences into this, uh, into this moment. It's really, it's really true, and I really think that, I mean, if there's any philosophy of life, right, it's, it's just keeping what your, you know, your, your passion there, and, you know, and it's not realistic. I mean, some people will hit the lottery, and everything comes really quick and easy, but in most cases, it doesn't, and so, but you can get little pieces of it, and, and, and every time you come to a crossroads, if, there's a, if you can think of a creative way to hang you know take the turn that gets you a little closer to your passion it's amazing how it just kind of you can get closer and closer well said well said so i know a big part of your life uh, and you you alluded to it in in the answer to the previous question skateboarding and uh and, and punk music have any of these uh passions outside of the wine um outside of wine influenced uh, how you approach winemaking? Have you been influenced at all? Anything oh, yeah. from skateboard culture? Yeah, and- absolutely. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I have some friends that were uh, also winemakers, like Matthew Rourke with Forlorn Hope was a skater. He's the same age as me, 
and we talk about this sometimes. Um, so that so there's an ethic to skating, and and um, and a big part of that is that you when you have a new skate spot, whatever that is, it could be a pool, it could be ditch, it could be anything. That you you know you're you're trying to find the lines that are there. There are a lot, there are lines there that are that are um, exist within that place, and and you're and the thing is to find them. And it, and 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 your the lines that are your lines are not be someone else's lines. And so you but but you want to but what's to be respected in the world of skating is that you find the lines in that place. You don't. It's super uncool to like treat every place the same, just go back and forth and do tricks. You know, you adapt to that place. That's the whole ethic of skating and, um, and, and, and personal expression. So another, so it's like a, so it's, so you're melding your style, personal style. No one has the same style with that, with the peculiarities of that place. And it's directly applicable to, you know, um, winemaking and the, and cause it's your style as a winemaker with that place and you're finding that marriage and because and, and just in wine it should be just, it's just as lame to make all the wines taste the same no matter where they're from skating is the same and um and then with, with punk rock it's um the like the like individuality i mean the the worst thing you can do is conform right the the it doesn't it's punk with punk especially when people you know there's like the media idea of some guy with a mohawk, but within the, in the world of punk, most people that would be quote unquote punk you don't look like they're punk. It's an attitude, and it's about making your own decisions, about thinking for yourself, about um, doing what you're into, and you don't care what anyone what anyone else thinks, says, judges any of that stuff. And, and likewise, you're not judging other people. That's the, that's what punk's all about. And so when it comes to wine, it's like, what kind of wine do you love? What do you want to make? You know, I love what's going on in California right now. To me, it's total, like, it's like the punk in the 80s is California wine right now where they're all different. Every single one is different. You know, there's all these young people that are starting brands and older people, but a lot of young people that... Um, and they're all the wines are very different from each other, and that's totally that's beautiful. That's you know that's um, um, that's punk right there, DIY. <laughs> so so in, in in punk culture, or or I should say, in reaction to punk culture and reaction to to skateboard culture by the mainstream is usually pretty. Um, pretty strong, right? They think, oh, these darn skateboarders, oh, these yeah. these these punk rockers. Do you? feel the wine industry reacts the same to doing something markedly different than let's say just the the regular cab or chardonnay recipe and and making a wine like ribola giala have you encountered some of that same resistance um yeah maybe, maybe you know um i would say it's that most in the wine industry um most people on the production side other winemakers other wine businesses uh, are people that love you know his wine is if you're going to get into making wine you're um, it's not the get rich quick scheme so you're doing it because you love it and so the other producers they have, may have totally different styles of wine but for the most part they're all extremely welcoming and supportive but uh, but there but within the wine industry for sure um, there has been a backlash against the idea of doing something different. And you you see in in the, like the that article a few years ago in the New York Times, the wrath of grapes spelled it out so sort of clearly, you know, where people are throwing terms around like calling those of us making lower alcohol wine in California jihadists, which I thought was like really, it, you know, we're making wine. It's a, it's a little bit lower in alcohol. We're, you know, how can that you know you know? But that's how emotional they felt about it that, to use that label jihadist is to, you know like. So out of left field, and um, you know, old, some of the old school. Like I used to get like like um, a lot of pushback when we were first getting going. Of like, the real common thing was you're in Napa. Why aren't you making Napa? My answer was always like, since when is there's some rule about what you make in Napa? There's a, you know, but um, but you'd get that all. I would get that all the time, basically, and luckily, 
uh, you know, the evolution of, of the wine business right now is on the buying side. There is the openness right now is, um, you know, there's no comparison to just recently, five or 10 years ago. I mean, you know, um, the op- it's the buyers are so open and trying to learn. It's, um, you know, we're not getting a lot of pushback right now, luckily. There, there's pushback to be had, but it's a different type of pushback. But there's a general openness, but but it but it's been a it's been a haul that's for sure of breaking down um, walls and barriers. Cabernet is 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 king, right? In 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 Napa Valley, I mean, you hear that all the time. Uh, that cab cab. If you're not planning cab in Napa, you're 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 not staying true to what what Napa is all about. Is that because? Cab sells at the highest price, or is it because it's the right grape uh, for Napa? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's stakeholders that have invested themselves in Napa that wanted that, um, you know. But I I think I don't know, you know, to I don't know that that I can take seriously that um, if you're coming to it from a stakeholder perspective, you want to step back for a minute and just kind of as a wine lover and appreciator and professional look at Napa there's no question that Cabernet is very well suited in Napa I mean it, it that variety does real you know it's it's become its own thing in Napa right you know it, it doesn't take it's obviously Bordeaux it, where Cabernet is from the wines are totally different and um and and so so Napa so Cabernet here um kind of has blossomed in a, in a completely different way than it has there and really um different than other places in the world I think so that's so there's no question about that but you know I call Napa the big greenhouse I mean it's and the the weather is so mild so consistent so sort of ideally suited to grapes that um, you can grow just about anything here really, really well. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you, and you think about the history of what's been grown here. There have been gr- all kind of great wines, all kind of great varieties that were great, that are b- great, not just good, but there's, you know, but great. And so, so there's a, so, I mean, you know, so there's an argument that can be made that, okay, the best, like, like that Pinot, you take Pinot Noir, for example, and, and then you can say, well, looking at the lens of Burgundy through, this one variety, since it's, uh, you can really see the terroir and the variance between the terroir because it's all through the lens of this one variety that's particularly well suited to this place, and 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 likewise Napa, you, you can really see the terroir through the lens of this one variety, and uh, whereas if we're a bunch of different varieties, it doesn't show you the the differences of the terroir as well because you have the varieties are different, and I and I think that's interesting, and I think there's enough cab here to tell that story and to look at our terroir through the lens of cab where where you can still have lots of other stuff and 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 you can have lots of i mean you know it's um very few things i can't i almost can't think of any varieties that grown here taste like where they're from but they almost always taste great but they but they taste very napa you know the wines have a lot of power a lot of intensity the power doesn't need to be alcohol you know lower alcohol napa wines still have a lot of power so that's just that's our our terroir here and 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 um and so so that's why i love growing different varieties here because you can see what the you know the the, it's like the varieties are explosively indicate their varietalness here grown here in napa you know if in a more marginal place or place that has more problems your taste the problems can apply interesting you can get interesting effects with the wine you know you put your wine way out on the way out on the coast and and you're really tasting the coastal influence on the wine because the wine's struggling in the cool weather and, and, and makes really exciting wines. Here, um, you know, there's nothing, the, you know, um, imp- you know the, the, the impinging on the vine's ability to get ripe or getting too ripe. or getting, So you just get this, like, what is that variety just in this really clear lens? And that's why, you know, it's why Napa is a particularly interesting place, I think, to look at different varieties. If someone came to you and said, "Hey, Tokalon is open, Cab's been ripped out. Do you plant Cab there, or do you what? What, what do you see as other great opportunities to use really in- incredible sites for other grape varieties?" Okay, so Tokalon, 
you have well-drained alluvial soil. You're about a third of the way up the valley, so it's warm but not hot. Um, so I so for sure I'd come back with a bunch of cab. We know cab does great in Tokaline. And and it did great when they did the first experiments in Tokaline in the 1800s when crab crab had over 100 varieties he was trialing and cab was in his top 5 his most suited to that site you know, according to his record keeping. But Rafosco was in his top 5. Rafosco does great for us in Oak Knoll, but we're on um loamier soil than Tokaline. And so I'd like to see Rafosco at Tokalon, as I think you'd have more structure and, and, um, and intensity. Uh, you know, um, I'd like to see Nebbiolo in Tokalon. I mean, if Cab does that well there, I don't see why you wouldn't make some, you know, it'd be interesting. It was not going to taste like Barolo, but it could be a spectacular wine because it's such a tannic variety and that, and, and that alluvial Tokalon soil is, makes such powerful but fine tannins. That it could you could get that with with Nebbiolo, um, you know whites um, higher acid whites do well there. Like you know the I block Sauvignon Blanc is awesome. So I'd like to try Shannon on at Tokalon. I think you know because Shannon you know tends to, it is a variety that like Cab. It's different in California, but it's really good in California. So those would be the first thoughts. Great, great. Well, Steve, that's interesting that you mentioned a couple of Italian varieties as uh, your first two that you would plant in Tokalon. So, um, and in fact, you craft wines from grapes uh, that are coming from Italy in addition to the other varieties. So I guess um, I've heard, I'm not sure, but um, this idea for some of these Italian varieties uh, came from a trip that you took to Friuli in 2005. Um, in northeastern Italy. So, so tell us what happened there, and, and what did you bring home, you know, mentally from that trip that you're using now in your practices? Okay, the, there's a few things I learned from Friuli. One is, just to circle back around, that they, that's, I think, the most sort of punk rock wine region uh, that's, you know, that, that, that I'm aware of. Um, you have Rebola Gialla, made in so many different ways. It doesn't have the conformity that a lot of wine regions have. You have people like E. Clevey doing a 10-year stainless steel aged wine. You have buried amphora with Grovner, you, you know, going back to his roots. You have Radicon with, you know, multi-month open top, unprotected, you know, whole cluster macerations. You have Movia burying it in the ground and digging it up in a full moon. I mean, it goes on and on, right? So, so, Going there gave me a lot of confidence at that stage in my career to, um, you know, to damn the torpedoes, you know, because, um, you know, I, I, it's hard not coming up in California wine industry to, to not feel that you will fail if you don't make that same wine that, um, you know, gets a certain number of points. So I got that out of Friuli, and, I, and another thing was, you know, they're a region that takes white wines really seriously. A lot of wine regions, they're about the reds and the whites are the afterthought. Um, Friuli prizes their whites. And and they those are strong whites. They have a lot of richness, and yet they really, they use the word freshness always. Like, you know, like the first duty of wine is to be fresh. And richness is important. And you can they get both of them in the same wine. And my, where I was at as a California winemaker was thinking that it was a dichotomy. The wine's either fresh or it's rich. So that was a unless you're like lucky enough to have like Grand Cru Burgundy or you know Premier Cru Burgundy, I should say. It's like you know where you get that because wow, this site is just so amazing that it's really super rich, but yet it's. Um, have ripping acid and, and also, but acid isn't necessarily freshness, but all of that. So, you know, they blend in freely. They, they work with what they have to achieve these, these wines that have that interesting balance. And so that, that was the other thing I learned. So I thought it was come bring back here and go, okay, we can, for one thing, we don't necessarily need to follow the rules so much. And for another thing, maybe, you know, wines can, that can have, more dimensions and one and you know so that so we our blended white was the first 
sort of um, thing like we we did after that was try to use a blend in the you know it's a different blend than the varieties of the use and some of the varieties overlap with friuli like but we use semion for richness they don't grow semion in friuli but I, we had semion and I thought well one of my clients and I thought well if you're going to blend something for you want low alcohol but you're looking for you know beautiful texture breadth that's semion so those are you know, some of the lessons. Well, I think the Italians would be very proud because you brought home the idea of individualism, and that's uh, near and dear to their hearts. And, and they also love to make rules, but then also break the rules. So so you learned a lot in, in that trip. Yeah. Um, so so you mentioned a full moon. So let's let's take that opportunity. And, and you also mentioned when you when you introduced yourself, the first word out of your mouth was farmer. So Talk to us a little bit about your philosophy of farming, um, because that's what you said, you know, really in the beginning you started to fall in love with, and you could have been a cotton farmer, but you ended up finding the intersection of a passion um, and something new and interesting, which was wine. So uh, I'm sure we could talk about this for about five hours, but uh, tell us a little bit about your view on organic, uh, biodynamic, um, um, you know, sustainability. What what are you using, and and how as a farmer do you, can you make those decisions? Okay. Well, okay. Let me think on that one. So sustain it. I mean, the bo- sustainability is the bottom line, but it's a very nebulous concept, and it's um, and it's a lifelong, mold, probably you know, it could be a multi generational. Um, endeavor and pursuit and and um um it's it's not you know because we don't know how to be sustainable with farming yet you know there's you know organic is a component of that you know that you know the the um you know the but it, it organic addresses one aspect it addresses what um, inputs you use, so you don't use synthetic inputs. That's essentially what it's about. So, um, you know, if you're there, there, and it's a very clear-cut thing. It was so it's incredibly um, clear and valuable for a for from a, a marketing perspective for like a complex food system that we have in this world that you can you can differentiate and say this fruit is organic, even though it's gone down a chain through changed hands multiple times and that simplicity and clarity really makes that work but you know a, there's a more nuanced perspective would could get you closer to sustainability than just you know being organic doesn't address compacting the soil doesn't address erosion of soil it doesn't address habitat for you know, on your farm it doesn't address um, you know your employees there's a lot of stuff that um, that you st- that still needs to be worked on. Doesn't address carbon footprint. So, you know, um, you know, and so that's why. I mean, and, and sometimes these things don't quite line up. Like, okay, well, we don't want to irrigate, so we cultivate more, but then we raise our carbon footprint. If we, you know, we want to grow um, native grasses and sequester carbon, but then we may not be able to dry farm any to irrigate, and so. So a lot of sustained so so like these new so so we just for me organic is a there's an emotional aspect to that it's meant a lot that word has meant a lot to my wife Jill and I for a long long time so we're sort of wedded to the um, to the idea of organic if we were completely clear-eyed about it we'd probably there'd be a few things that we would probably we might use. A, you know, a fertilizer or something like that here or there, because you might you could make a rational case that in terms of sustainability that there you know that that exact organic line may not be isn't exactly placed correctly. You could go further one way on some areas and further the other way in areas. We just but we have an emotional connection to the idea of organic farming, so that means a lot to us. Um, and we're trying to, but then but then you know we try to also minimize erosion. We're trying to work on our carbon footprint as best we can. We're trying to add habitat, but all, you know, we're trying to have our, our, have our company be a place for, you know, where employees can actualize themselves and continue to develop themselves as people. But 
when I say, I say trying and all that stuff, because um, in some cases, you can only do what you can do in terms of your bandwidth or your abilities, your economic abilities, time, ideas. There's also just the, a lot of this stuff hasn't been figured out yet. You know, like I can't wait to see like electric tractors, for example, that can work on solar. And right now we're using diesel. Technology isn't there yet. So I can't say we're, it's sustainable when you're using diesel. It's not, and so, but we don't have electric, the electric tractors haven't been invented that I'm aware of. So this, there's that sort of thing. So it's a, it's going to be a, that's why I mean it's a lifelong pursuit, basically. You talk a little bit about um, sustainability as it relates to to organics. Is is biodynamics the good marriage between sustainability and organics, or is it something completely different? I th- I, I would I think biodynamics is related to sustainability and organics, but it's its its its, uh, its own thing. And as I mentioned, that we have an a, a emotional relationship with organic farming. Biodynamic farming, to me, is is about an emotional relationship with your land. And it's um, there's more belief in biodynamics than I'm personally comfortable with or have sort of... Um, Let's say, is epiphanized a word? I haven't. I haven't um, had the epiphany personally of like wanting to go down that route be, um, in terms of the preparations and the cow horns and the and working with the constellations and the lunar calendar and that. And I, it's I have huge respect for people that do biodynamics, and I think that um, and I, you know, because variety is the spice of life, and if people are going to be passionate. About especially about non with nonlinear thinking, I think that that's great, and I want to have more of that in the world. Um, I'm focused on, you know, I, I studied agriculture and and soil science and soil microbiology, and there's and so I'm working on improving soil health and reducing environmental impact and and improving my personal relationship with the plants on more of a spiritual level. Sort of, um, I guess on uh, what Jill and I are doing on our terms, as rather we're not subscribing to the biodynamic philosophy personally, but it's biodynamics is very much a philosophy, and so it's in that sense it's a it's a personal thing. You know, it's like some people want to give up meat for Lent, and that means something to them, and and you're not going to take that away from them. That's great, but but um, that's a personal choice that they make. We here in Napa Valley, I would be safe to say we have a monoculture, right? I mean, it's pretty much about grapes and and not much about anything else. In most of the wine regions, classic wine regions of the world, that's not the case, right? It's it's um, it's not a monoculture. We have a lot of diversity. Um, isn't that the heart of sustainability? Is is that diversity? I mean, you practice that on on your farm, right? You have vineyards. You you grow other crops. You have chickens. Um, when you start using your land for many different um, uh, things and, and, and sustaining many different um, forms of organism, aren't you then just naturally being sustainable? Um, so having, you know, so, so monoculture, the problem with monoculture is twofold, right? It's lack of habitat. And it is, and pests and diseases can get out of hand really quickly because you don't have the buffering of, of uh, you know, of um, other food sources and other more complexity and diversity and sort of this checks and balances with insect populations and disease populations. And so, um, the problem is that wine grapes do make really great wine, and only if very small little piece part of the world and so you know you take the Napa Valley and it's just so ideally suited to wine grapes so I so it's it's tough to well you can't do rotational crops really that well uh, you know when you have something that hopefully is going to be in the ground for in perfect world 50 to 100 years and so the way that I so I, you can't really and it's hard to say, well, we want to grow lettuce where Monterey, 
and Salinas Valley is better suited for lettuce than here. And so how do you work with a monoculture and still try to deal with, with this with the problems of monoculture? And so one is cover crops. So, you know, because the vines have all this, you know, they come up out of the ground like little mini trees and you have all this ground area. You know, we're doing a lot with right now with native California native grasses, and I'm trying to reestablish meadows where you have, um, you know, no-till native grasses that you get a natural duff and you start having rodents and snakes and ground-dwelling bees and stuff living in, in the basically the um, permanent meadows that you have in between the vines. I'm trying to work on that because, and that's part of our, you know, the, oak savanna we used to have. So I'm trying to create kind of the vision is like a grapevine savanna. So you still have the savanna habitat, but it's grapes. And then oaks, or the other part of it is edges. Because these are small, a lot of the vineyards are in Napa are small, and so there's a lot of edge effect. And so the edges are your opportunity to leave wild area to plant California natives. You know, so like, you know, we plant hedgerows that have California natives that are blooming 12 months out of the year. So along your farm edges, you're creating habitat for all the insects. They, they call them the non-charismatic megafauna. You know, like everyone wants to save giraffes, but no one wants to save little gnats. But the gnats are, could be endangered as well, but they need some particular bush to follow the life cycle. So we're trying to have that along the edges. And, you know, quail and the whole nine yards. The oak trees, I keep you know, when acorn comes up, you know, it might be if it's in a halfway decent spot, try to leave it, that sort of thing. And so we try, to, we try to leave some wild areas where if a dead branch falls off, it can just lay there and rot, and cavity nesting insects and birds can use it. You know, there's more habitat value in dead trees than there is in living trees, but the dead trees get cleaned up. So it's, there's, there's some things like that that you can still, we can, I think that we, we can say, well, apple's great for grapes, we'll grow grapes here, but you can still... Um, hedge against, you know, the whole, the monoculture problem. So Steve, earlier we were talking about, um, uh, power in wines, uh, and that power doesn't have to come from, from alcohol levels. In fact, some of your wines are, are, are labeled at 11 or 11 and a half percent. So do you think that, um, uh, well, and, and you also talked, obviously, you've been studying farming for, for most of your life. So, so tell us a little bit about what has changed in farming and winemaking, let's say, in the last 50 years, where we did see a big trend in, in high-alcohol wines. And, and what is your secret for slowing down some of this ripeness that often translates into high alcohol? Okay. So, I mean, so much... Some of the high, there's a lot of reasons for alcohol levels coming up. You know, part of it is style and critics. Part of it is, you know, improving, viticulture improving. By that, less viruses, clean plant material, um, lower vigor rootstocks, um, better canopy management, so more lights infusing the canopy, things like that. And, and um, you know, global warming is part of it. But there was a study, Journal of Wine Economics did a study, and, and I can't remember, but 10 or 15% of the they could explain 10 or 15% of the, but with this statistical analysis of the alcohol increase with global warming. I can't remember, it might have been 20%, but that was somewhere in there. And then the other 80 or so percent, you can't explain with global warming. So that would be style or of, har- you know, either something's happening in the vineyard, harvest, date, or winery, right? Global warming, if it's not degree days, if it's an earlier start, that gives you an earlier harvest, which gives you more ability to let it hang longer because you have more season. So it's not so much warmth during the ripening season, but the the ability to have a longer season, which is a choice. So that you know that's not a foregone conclusion. You're saying, oh well, it used to be I had to pick at the last week of October, and that and oh gee, we only got to twenty two five. Well, now you can pick second week of September at twenty two five, or you can wait until first week of October and pick it at 28. And so a lot of folks are like, hey, we let's take advantage of this extra, extra ripening. So in the end up with the higher sugar. So there's a little bit of the global warming isn't necessarily it. every day is hotter. It's this longer season. But but so there's so much of that is style, of, you know, because you if you have a wine region that couldn't get high sugar and now they can, a lot of cases people on the, you know, the winemakers wanted the higher sugar. They want, they, maybe they wanted it all along. I've had clients that um, 
I thought, I know them well, and I thought that their wines back in the 70s were better. And now the wines are pretty big and full and ripe. But they don't think that at all. They think they're better now. They didn't like them in the 70s. Like, I'm more of a wine geek. I like, you know, more tannic, harder, more acidic, red fruit, herbal cabs, let's say. You know, I, I want use to use somewhat disparaging, but that's kind of, you know, there's two sides to wine appreciation, and everyone doesn't like that. Especially on the production side, a lot of times they're struggling for the plushness and softness, and they're happy they finally get to hang out longer. But, so who knows, you know, there's all these combination of factors, but for, you know, for me personally, um, the, the wines we drink, my, Joe and I drink, we drink wine at dinner, with dinner, okay, so that's, so, so it's wine with food, it's, she, my, Jill worked for um, a nonprofit called the Community Alliance with Family Farmers for about 10 years, and so that was in the late 80s and early 90s, looking, you know, so working hard on building a local food movement, so, you know, they would do seminars, you know, with farmers, how do you sell directly to chefs, et cetera, and so, and then I was really interested in organic gardening, et cetera, like we talked about earlier, and so, so fresh produce from the garden is like a huge part of our diet. And there's also, so that's, so we want wine that goes with fresh produce from the garden. There's also a philosophical ethic um, that, you know, shaped by people like Alice Waters, that if you're going to have fresh local food, you, you know, like a perfect heirloom carrot, you want to do the minimal to it to, you want to taste the carrot. And so a little bit, we try to apply that to, to wine. And then, and so, so we're saying, how can we, how can we, so, so part of it, how we can make wines like that is picking a little earlier, and then, but then part, but then, part of it is viticulturally. Sort of, if you know that you're going to pick it earlier, you don't have to. The problem with the hang time is that is if you have a winemaker who wants to pick it late, and you have a, wine, a vineyard manager, because in California they're very often two different people, typically two different people. The vineyard manager doesn't really know exactly when the winemaker is going to pick, but knows it's going to be late. So therefore, we better irrigate a fair amount to keep the fruit in good condition so that it can last for until the winemaker thinks it's ready. Well, then you get into a self-fulfilling prophecy because the winemaker is like, shoot, this wine isn't, get, the fruit isn't getting ripe. You know, and so waiting, and so they're sort of dancing with each other. And so, but as a vineyard manager, you, if you just cut the water earlier or cut it back on it and let the vine go through its cycle earlier and you don't you're not on the same page with the winemaker on that plan and you may say you're on the same page because the winemaker's like oh yeah i won't let it hang too long but then they're tasting it and they decide they want to let it hang too long and you haven't been watering it the food's going to crash on you so you can't take that chance so in our case growing our own fruit i know when we're that we're, when we're going to pick it or when we want to pick it and so i can really take a lot of risk by withholding irrigation and letting it go through its cycle and letting the leaves turn yellow and then and picking the fruit what looking at the weather next week it's supposed to get 110 north winds fruit isn't quite ripe i'm picking it anyways because i don't want it to go through that heat if you're selling the fruit they might say you're not quite ripe i'll let it go through the heat i, I you know it's not where i need it to be so there's so like so i can take so with us, we can take that chance, and we. There's also, I think, the organic farming really, really helps with getting the ripeness at lower sugar levels. The the I, and this is something that again, where I'm on more belief territory. Like I was talking earlier with biodynamics, but I really think, I mean, there's some science, but it hasn't been. There's a lot of science on organic farming and root health and plant immunity. There isn't really any science to speak of on how that carries through into wine quality. But if you just kind of connect the dots and think about how plants work. And phenolics and grapes, I think it's pretty good. I feel pretty confident that there's something going on there with good, healthy soils, lots of organic matter, and the plant's immune system and helping with the ripeness at lower sugar levels. So those are some of the... Another thing is crop level. There's this sort of myth that the lower the crop level, the better the quality. You know, that's our puritanical cultural baggage, no pain, no gain you know, um, greatness through suffering. And so um, a lot of times we undercrop looking for quality and then the sugars spike up faster than they need need to and it's about balance. And so putting it, there needs to be enough fruit on the vine so the vine has to work 
and it slows the sugar accumulation. So, so the art is finding what that balance point is, not too much fruit, not too little fruit. So you, you, you consult for a lot of clients on, um, uh, from a viticultural standpoint. And what you've just explained to us is, um, seems almost revolutionary here in, uh, in, in Napa Valley. How is this advice taken by your, by your clients? Because some of your clients make very elegant wines, and then there are other clients that subscribe to the, to the bolder style side of, uh, of Napa Valley. So what, I guess my question to you is, what are they looking for? Are they looking for you to help them become more sustainable or just to understand a little bit more about what they have in, in their vineyard? Got it. Um, well, it's a range, sort of like trying to be more sustainable, it, you know, for me kind of comes like, like if they hire me, if they're looking for just pure wine quality, they're stuck with also me trying to get them to be more sustainable <laughs> because that, you know, it's really important to me. And it's, and I, and I think that I can't think of any cases where sustainability and wine quality don't actually, um, intersect because most of the practices for sustainability improve wine quality and vice versa. And so a lot of times, so there's, there could be a little education with, with them and getting them comfortable and bringing them along. We don't build Rome in a day, but, um, in, you know, but bring it in a direction. Good viticulture is good viticulture, you know, vi- that balance, no matter what um, style of wine you're trying to make. Um, there is, a lot of my clients are looking, are struggling to, a lot of my clients were, if, the reason we got together because is because they were frustrated that their wines weren't as elegant as they wanted them to be, and and but the problem is if you just pick earlier and don't do anything else differently, the wine it isn't ripe. It's like like the game of Tetris basically, and so a lot of our work is is letting them have full expression of you know full wines, big wines, lots of flavor, you know Napa Napa Cab, but at a but. But maintaining balance and elegance, and not having to have to fight all the the high alcohol, and so so a lot of it'd be surprising how like how some winers that have some really big wines, but they still don't want to they still fight alcohol. Like no one wants to be six. They they want you want to have a lot of color, a lot of richness, but no one wants to be sixteen alcohol. You know, just from it's just hard to get. I mean, there's so many problems just in the fermentation with that. Even if you don't care about alcohol. And so it's just like you say, it's like it's a gamut. But that's one of the things, I mean, who knows what people are interested in or what their goals are. Everyone has in the, who has vineyards has different sets of goals. But the grapevines are grapevines. They're these, you know, these little living creatures all lined up in a row in, with their roots in living soil. And that is every single vineyard. And so... So, so, so it's a lot of fun for me to try to work with the people and help them achieve their goals. And, and I get to, you know, but the, but the consistency is that working with these living vines and, you know, be, and trying to help the vines along and so that every, you know, it's bringing that together. That's, that's what it's interesting because in every single person, their goals are different, but, you know, the great, you know, these grapevines. You look at them, and grapevines hold their emotions on their sleeves. You know, that's one of the things I love about grapevines. There's no secret agenda. It's, I mean, people are interesting, but, but, obviously, but um, sometimes they can be too interesting. You know, and grapevines. There's a logic there. Just the natural world. The natural world has logic. There's nothing that ever happens in nature by accident. And, and, and if you just study it, you can figure out why the plant's doing what it's doing. And, and, that's, um, and, and so that is consistent across all of the vineyards. What keeps you up at night? What, what weighs heavy on your mind in, in the wine industry that has you with a sleepless night? Um, people are always like, oh, aren't you worried about the rain or something? And I don't worry about weather or crop load or anything like that it's um that's the fun of it and that's totally out of our control and it's just again there's no agenda mother nature just is um moving around and so i don't you know it's it's um 
like the thing that kept me up last night was on one of the vineyards that we lease. Um, I we were removing some vines to um, move some end posts because we they planted some olive trees and we can't turn the tractor around. And I miscommunicated, and we uh, and and my guys pulled out the wrong vines. And so the owner of the vineyard that we're leasing is understandably really upset about it. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that keeps me up. It's not, it's not weather. It's not, you know, the weather, the wine, the grapes. Like I said, there's all the logic. It's, oh, geez, the, you know, the, the people, the people, you know. My very first um, day on my very first job with Four Seasons Ag Consulting, I, my, I went out with my, my, my boss at the time, Bill Thompson, really ex- like he was like 30 years of experience as a, you know, working with farmers on uh, studying their, you know, as a, they call him a field man, where going out there checking for insects and bugs and fertility and giving them reports. And, and he was trying to move everyone in a more sustainable direction. A lot of it were not organic farmers, though, conventional farmers, but trying to move more sustainable. And he had showed me, showed me how to like look, look at predatory mites and look at, spider mites and be able to and 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 with a hand lens on the back of a leaf and you, like a little loop like you'd look at jewelry or something and you say look see if you see these enough predatory mites they'll eat the spider mites and you don't have to spray so then we're out there in the vineyard a different vineyard and i'm looking at the any and, and we're looking at the um leaves like you showed me and i'm like oh wow it's covered with predatory mites and then he says yeah he goes yeah, we're gonna uh, spray this vineyard tomorrow with kelthane, which is a really nasty um, miticide. And I'm like, why are you going to spray it? And, uh, you know, it's covered with predatory mites. He showed me that they, um, and he says, and, he, and his answer was, he goes, the bugs are the easy part. It's the people that are the hard part. And, you know, their winery that they sell the fruit to had seen the mites and said, you, you need to spray. Interesting. So, there, you know, so it's, um, yeah, it's all people. Yeah. What, um, one last question for you. What, what's your proudest achievement? Uh, having a great relationship with my two sons. Yeah. That's I don't take for granted as I'm always working on it. It's like sustainability. <laughs> I always want to say achievement because we're, it's a, yeah, as you, with, with kids, it's a work in progress, but we have a great relationship. So that's what I, that's what I'm really proud of. Great. Well, thanks so much for uh, for joining us today and um, sharing your sharing your wisdom and, and passion with us. Thank you. Cheers. This is Christian Ogenfus, and I wanted to thank you for tuning in today for our interview with Steve Mathiason of Mathiason Wines. If you want to know more about Steve, check out our show notes on our website. Also, we encourage you to follow this podcast, like us, share us with your friends, and if you have time, leave us a review too. Until next time, it's the stories behind wine from Napa Valley Wine Academy. Cheers.